Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Thing in the Cellar by David H. Keller. A short story first published in Weird Tales, March 1932. I uh, read it from the pages of Weird Tales. And I think it's a really fun story. I sent it to you. I think you agreed fairly easily to this one. Um, I have some qualms with it or uh, problems with it, but I, I, I can see why it has a, a large and enduring appeal to many people who have read it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, the story is a pretty straightforward one. Mm-hmm. There is a baby born into a home that sits atop a foundation of what must have been a much larger home. The seller of the current home is separated from the main house by a very heavy oak door, the kind you might find as an exterior door in a rough neighborhood. Um, The baby from birth is super sensitive, doesn't like being in the kitchen where that door is, and goes wild if the door is left open. This sensitivity to the proximity of the open of access to the basement continues and when it's time for the child to go to school the family particularly the father there's only the one child um, they really like their kid but they think that he's there's something there's this one problem is that he's hypersensitive and uh, they go to a doctor and ask him what to do about it the doctor says uh, well there's nothing in the basement so just nail the door open <laughs> And let your kid force your kid to stay there for an hour. And when he sees that there's nothing in the basement, he'll be cured and he'll be a real man. Uh, But in fact, what happens is that uh, he consults with a colleague of his named Dr. Hawthorne. uh, And Dr. Hawthorne says, uh, no, that was a bad idea. Um, So the first. Sorry. Sorry. Doctor, that's not doctor. That's Doctor Johnson. The first doctor is Doctor Hawthorne, and uh, has almost the same name as the fellow who wrote the House of the Seven Gables, mm-hmm. which is relevant here. Um, and Doctor Hawthorne, on his way home, having heard Doctor Johnson's reprimand, stops in to see how the family is. But it turns out that they had already followed his advice just about an hour earlier, and they go in to find that little Tommy is not only dead, but mutilated. So what can you do? And then people like you, Jesse, laugh. So I guess that's what you mean when you say it's a fun story. Uh I had no idea what you meant when you said it was a fun story. But, okay, so I would like to know from you Mm -hmm. three things. One, does that seem like a fair summary? Two, does – does that give you uh, the j- grist you need to explain your sense that this is fun? Mm-hmm. And three, what do you see in it that makes it so clear that this story would have an enduring appeal? Mm. Um, I didn't know that it had as much enduring appeal to others uh, until after I read it and we agreed to do a show on it. And I started doing some research to see if anybody had 
uh, commented on it, and many people have. Um, it's uh, it's got. I I will before I go there though. I I think I will address the first part of your question. Is it a fair summary? I think it's very fair. The only question I had in my mind while reading it was uh, whether he was an only child. <laughs> um, at one point in the story, uh, Dr. Hawthorne is returning to the house to find uh, out if he can stop the experiment that he's decided to inflict upon poor little Tommy Tucker. Uh, it, the, yeah, Tucker's the last name. Um and uh, as he goes to the house, he mentions that he had been there uh, before, and of course he had been when the parents visited, I guess, or when he visited them, or maybe they they went to his office. I can't remember. And yeah, any- no, Jesse, I can I can I can straighten this out. On sure. page four hundred six, it mm-hmm. says um, he never explained just why he acted as he did. In fact, he refused to talk about it, at least to his parents. And that was just as well, because had he done so, they would simply have been more positive than ever that there was something wrong with their only child. Oh, yes, I know that. Um, (laughs) In fact, I've got that highlighted. Well, when Dr. Hawthorne had been there previously, it had been on the occasion of the boy's birth. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but that doesn't mean he was born alone. I think that it's possible that, I mean, it's not well evidenced in the story, uh, but I think it's possible in the the way it's brought up and the way that Tommy addresses the issue that he has, that at one point in the story, I was convinced that the thing in the cellar was going to be Tommy's dead evil twin. And I know that's not well supported by the ending of the story, but at one point during the story, I felt that that was a possibility. Now, there are problems with that, even initially, given that the house is so old and that Tommy is not the first resident of it and and, and such things. But um, we, we also are in a kind of a fantasy world here. I don't know where this story is supposed to be set. Uh, maybe somewhere in the United States. Um, well, it says London. Does it? I didn't. I didn't see that. Um, could have been London, England, I suppose. Could have been uh, London, Ontario. I don't get a, a, a lot of but sense since, of where it's set. Well, I at first I thought since Keller is American and since the book is an, uh, the magazine is an American publication, um, a place that Lovecraft uh, published a lot. It sounds to me from the opening description as if it could be New England. Um, But it says on page 408, it all worried Dr. Hawthorne so much that he decided to take his friend's advice. It was a cold night, a foggy night, and the physician felt cold as he tramped along the London streets. Mm. So um, given the traditional description of London streets. It's foggy, sure. Yeah, so I'm not guessing London, Ontario, although that's a pleasant little town. I've been there a <laughs> and number they have fog there too. But yeah, it, it seems kind of unimportant to the story. And this is um this is kind of where I was going with the second half of that your question, which is the popularity of this story. So one of the things you can do if you if you're into uh, exploring the internet is you type in the words creepy pasta into the internet. Have you heard of Creepypasta? Uh, no, I think I had some last night, though. <laughs> so Creepypasta is kind of a, it's kind of, I guess the way I would describe it is, it's it's urban legend 
transformed from campfire stories into internet stories. So people uh, apparently it came on some forums. What happened was it's a sort of a cute derivation of copy-paste, creepypasta, and it's a copy-paste of a scary story. So somebody on some server tells us a scary story just in sort of a writing exercise method, and that story's popular, and somebody copies and pastes that to another forum uh, where someone else reads it and enjoys it and copy it as, you know, I want to send you links to stories. Um, if you don't have the link, you can just send the story, right? Copy and mm -hmm. paste the text. And this is a story that has had that happen to it many times. In in If you go to YouTube and type in The Thing in the Cellar, you will see many people reading this as a creepypasta story. Um, some of them attribute it to David H. Keller and some don't. Um, <laughs> I think that that's even... Interesting. Uh, exactly. And and so as you file the, um, the details down and when you listen to people reading it, sometimes they don't do the whole story or they do their version of the story. It becomes a an urban legend of a certain kind. It has the feel of, if you think about it, of an urban legend with, you know, sort of that punch at the end, uh, arbitrary punishment for everybody and no resolution, just creepiness. Um, and it goes right, I think to the title, uh, the thing. And there's a, a number of touches throughout the story where it just, it, it feels comedic. So I want to point to one of the first ones. Um, the door, as described, and I love I love the background for the house. And I want to point to just how great the setup is. Um, how we've, we, as you pointed out, it's it's a, a massive cellar. At some point, we think that the house that the cellar was built upon burnt down, and a new but smaller house was built upon atop it. The separation, that heavy door, uh, described as an oaken door, uh, thick, stoutly built, dexterously rabbited together with huge wrought iron hinges and a lock that looked as though it came from Castle Despair. Now, maybe there's a Castle Despair, especially near London. I've never heard of it. I couldn't find any evidence that it exists. Um, although I note that there are many games that include uh, a castle called castle despair or castle of despair um so people are <laughs> loving this idea that's keller being uh, very playful um and the fact that we've got all of these great words sort of seemingly slapdash together into this wonderful phrase listen to this around the base of the series of steps this is in the cellar Successive owners of the house had placed their firewood, winter vegetables, and junk. Where <laughs> junk is a funny word. And then the next sentence, the junk had gradually been pushed back until it rose head high in a barricade of uselessness. So we get the sense, I get the sense that this is like, there's a bunch of stuff down there. And this is a word that I, I tell my students, you, you know, don't use the word stuff if you can find a more specific word but there are circumstances where stuff and things are quite useful especially when you're trying to show sort of a slapdash approach to something and and yet it's it is very comedic when 
Tommy learns to crawl, it doesn't say Tommy learned to crawl. It says when Tommy learned to creep. <laughs> he lost no time in leaving the kitchen. Um, I guess at some point I must have learned to creep too. But I don't normally think of it that way. It's almost like the author is trying to make you feel creepy by calling it a... <laughs> the child is creeping. But it feels like he's composing a uh, a comedic symphony, if you see what I mean, rather than... Uh, no, actually, I don't. Okay, well, this feels <laughs> sure, like sure. a parody of a, of a, of a H.P. Lovecraft story in a certain sense. Ah, yes. So... I can see how, how that sounds to you. Uh, now I understand how it looks to you, not how it looked to me. But one of the reasons that it didn't look that way to me is that I don't think of this as slapdash at all. I think of it as having deep, serious intent, some of which I think and this, of course, I have no evidence for, uh, excuse me, no definitive evidence for. Uh, some of that intent, I think, was not understood by the author himself. Mm. Um, but to take that one word creep, which you see as comedic, which and I, and I can see how it could look that way. On the other hand, um, instead of using the word crawl, when it's when Keller writes, when Tommy learned to creep, he lost no time in leaving the kitchen. No sooner was his mother's back turned than the little fellow crawled as fast as he could for the doorway opening into the front of the house, the dining room and the front parlor. So clearly Keller does know how to use the word crawl. It's mm -hmm. right there in the next sentence. So what is the word creep? And what I see there is the little boy knows he's supposed to stay by his mother. And so he is sneaking out. Before he can even talk, he's sneaking. And I can see why if you think of a little, you know, a three-month-old baby trying to, to mimic what we would think of as an adult sneaking away, um, that would be comedic. On the other hand, one could also say this is a particularly well-chosen word because he's not just crawling. He's trying to crawl in such a way that his absence will not be noticed because he knows what happens if his mother sees him, she'll bring him back in and he'll feel whatever terrors he feels. So I don't at all discount your your sense of fun here. And now I'm beginning to understand it. But that wasn't what was uh, dominant for me mm -hmm. uh, to, to go back to that opening paragraph, which really does seem, you know, like, as you were saying, it's, it's, it's so Lovecrafty. And I mean, it's just. It's throughout the whole story, we get one thing after another, you know, little babies are sensitive to the unseen. It's like unicorns and, you know, and virgins. I mean, it's just. Or it's cats. All, I, or I think cats, he ha Lovecraft has it with cats. He says stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Right. So it begins. It was a large cellar entirely out of proportion to the house above it. The owner admitted it was probably built for a distinctly different kind of structure from the one which rose above it. Probably the first house had been burned and poverty had caused a diminution of the dwelling erected to take its place. Now, I read that paragraph and I thought, mm, so we have a house where the cellar is bigger than the house. Mm -hmm. Now, we're all aware, whether or not we know references for it, of the notion that Gaston Bachelard gives us in The Poetics of Space, that we have a certain kind of 
innate sense that that basements are the zone of the suppressed psychological, the fearful mm-hmm. desire, right, as opposed to the attic, which is typically um, the imaginary and maybe even the intellectual. Um, and there are nests. I mean, Bachelard discusses the different poetics quite well. Sellers are are good for this. Here's a story that reminds me of Poe um, in The Black Cat. Uh, after the first house burns down, uh, Poe's narrator is living in a smaller house, which he says poverty had compelled us to occupy. Mm-hmm. He never blames himself for burning the house. Poverty had compelled us to occupy. And here poverty had caused a diminution. Um, Keller says there's more going on below the surface than is visible at the top. And I can't help but think, here we have David H. Keller, who claims himself to be the first psychiatrist to to uh, write for the pulp magazines. He is a psychiatrist who writes a story in which there are two psychiatrists mm-hmm. uh, or one not quite a psychiatrist, just a doctor, Dr. Hawthorne, and the other who is not only a psychiatrist, but a child psychiatrist uh, who's Dr. Johnson. Now, Hawthorne in the House of Seven Gables has a haunted house. But the the hauntingness continues to work, even though in the course of the novel, the world that supports haunting is supplanted by the world of science through the character of Holgrave, the photographer who sees things, but he sees them in a brighter light. And the heroine is named Phoebe, speaking of light. Uh, That's a very famous novel. It's about haunted houses. We have a Hawthorne doctor here, but this Hawthorne doctor doesn't get it. He needs the modern Johnson to to get him right. But David H. Keller is a psychiatrist and he is saying, well, psychiatrists are better than ordinary doctors in understanding what's going on psychologically. Um, That's nice. He's giving himself some some kudos. But Keller is the German word for seller. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So when he says there was a large seller entirely out of proportion to the house above it, I can't help but think that whether he knew it or not, David Keller is saying there's something more going on down here than is intellectually known by the story writer. Oh, yeah. And and the thing that I think he is most getting at uh, from a a useful point of view for modern discussion. And I don't mean that entertainment is bad or looking at how stories are constructed are bad, but there is some, I think, virtue in being able to see, say of a story, what does this mean in my life? What, what can I do with it? Well, I'm not a little kid afraid of the seller and I'm not raising my kids that way. What we see in this story consistently is a child with a fear. And the fact that that fear is felt by the child is enough to validate it as worthy of a parent's consideration and respect, according to Dr. Johnson, the actual psychiatrist. Those who do not have that respect all believe in what we today in the 21st century, most of us would consider an outmoded idea of hyper masculinity. Mm hmm. Right. The father, a father who should, after all, love his child. The father says, I need you to become a man so that I can be proud of you. 
because without being able to face down his own fears, he would the Tommy's fears. He would not be proud of him. Tommy Tucker. Tucker is somebody who provides food. Mm-hmm. Right. Tuck up to the table and so on. Tommy is <laughs> British slang, British slang for a soldier. And little Tommy Tucker is this little soldier that the father is trying to send out into the world to help him because they have to live in an impoverished environment. This is a 1932 story. It comes in the middle of the of the Depression. And it seems to me that part of what's going on in this story is that with so much taken away, what can people hang on to? The breadwinner, this is clearly a man goes out to work, woman stays home and cooks story. Mm-hmm. The breadwinner cannot win enough bread, but he can say, by golly, I'm a man, and no son of mine is not going to be manly. And what the story suggests is that kind of an attitude, that sense of what it means to be a man, is in fact outmoded and needs to be gotten rid of. Why do I say that? Two reasons. One, using that attitude is exactly what puts Tommy in the situation in which he is killed. Two, he's killed by something that arises out of junk. Mm-hmm. You, you pointed to that word, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Junk is an interesting concept. When I saw it in this story the first time I read it, what it made me realize was there is a difference between junk, as it's used here, and trash or refuse. Trash and refuse are things you get rid of. As it's used here, junk is things that are disused but not discarded. Mm -hmm. They're still around. And what I'm suggesting is that whether Keller knew what he was getting out of his own cellar or not, the story suggests that once upon a time, when men had to defend their families and their, their neighborhoods and their tribes and whatever, by force of arms and could not be seen to cry or feel any weakness, that attitude, that sense of masculinity is now junk. It is disused, but damn it, we have not discarded it. Mm -hmm. It's still there in our basements and it can kill us. I I think that's great. I also uh, like you're pointing out the last name associated with food because um, what happens to poor little Tommy at the end is he becomes food. <laughs> <laughs> Does it? Um, the other amazing part of this story for me, uh, at least at the beginning, is is what uh, it, it it has to do, I think, with the way it's narrated. And I, I love thinking about who's telling this story. It makes me think of very much like those urban legend sort of stories you would tell around a campfire because it's it's I don't think it's any of the characters in the story. Um, and it seems kind of distant, but it all, there's a few comments here and there, but just listen to this. This paragraph is my favorite playing in the kitchen. The child developed two interesting habits, rags, scraps of paper and splinters of wood were continually being shoved under the thick oak door to fill the space between the door and the sill. So I just I think that that's it shows the passion that Tommy has to try and keep himself safe 
Whenever Mrs. Tucker opened the door, there was always some trash there, as opposed to junk, right? Placed mm. by her son. It annoyed her, and more than once, the little fellow was thrashed for this conduct. But punishment acted in no way as a deterrent. And then, this is the 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 peak of the story for me. The other habit was singular. Once the door was closed and locked, he would rather boldly walk over to it and caress the old lock. Even when he was so small that he had to stand on tiptoe to touch it with the tips of his fingers, he would touch it with a slow with slow caressing strokes. Later on, as he grew, he used to kiss it. <laughs> this is kind of like the most... It's like... Uh, if it was a dog and that dog protected you from a monster, of course you would, you know, uh, give it some pets and, you know, maybe even let it kiss you. But the fact that this little boy is is loving, loving and cherishing the lock that protects him from the thing in the cellar, whatever that is, is just, it's priceless to me. It shows his psychology in a way that is never actually exposed in his in his dialogue in in the story when the doctor talks to him he can't explain what it is but the word thing it's right in the title it comes up again and again with with you know junk and trash and and that sort of thing it comes up here and there and I, I just want to point one more out again finally nothing would and this is on the same page 406 finally nothing would do but the but that the Tucker family can call on the neighborhood physician. It was an important event in the life of the Tuckers, so important that it demanded the wearing of Sunday clothes and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so I'm not sure why this, why that sentence continues after Sunday clothes and all that sort of thing. I have a theory. Tell me. Well, the reason people wear Sunday clothes is that they want to be seen by the rest of the congregation to be showing the most respect that they can mm -hmm. and maybe show off um, in the house of God, which is, after all, the kind of place that might have that kind of thick oak door. Mm -hmm. And just as one might go up to the rail to take communion ah. or one might kiss the ring of the Pope, <laughs> I think our little boy who is instinctively in touch with what might be evil in the world goes to show his respect to the lock that keeps him safe <laughs> from the devil below in the same way that someone might, as I say, kiss the, the ring of the Pope. That's what the, all that sort of thing has to do with it. It seems to me. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, it, it, it is that touch that's added. I mean, there, there's no, technical reason because it doesn't tell more information and yet it does echo back and that's where i think this is not a, a it's not a slapdash story it feels like it could be a slapdash story but actually i think it's rather carefully constructed um and the the humor that i see in it is it's kind of the grim humor that you enjoy in a creepypasta story right that kind of <laughs> gives you a sense of uh, ooh, it's spooky. I mean, why why do we find out that the house was burned down? It's never answered, and yet speculating about it just in the in the unconscious, we think we might know, right? Whatever 
previous resident had had a problem with i mean we don't know what's going to happen after the end of this story and that sense that there's there's a reason but not an explanation is what's so cool about this sort of example of of a of a terrific whatever it was story we, we never get an explanation as to what the thing in the cellar is I, I like that. Um, I would like to suggest that that unexplained thing does still have a lot to do with the unarticulated concept, that outmoded concept of, of masculinity. I, I notice on uh, 408, uh, the father is explaining to Tommy what he's going to do. Uh, full of phallic imagery with the nails. Mm. And I am going to nail the door open, Tommy, so you cannot close it, as that was what the doctor said, Tommy. (laughs) You are to be a man and stay here in the kitchen alone for an hour, as if men can't ask for help, right? Mm -hmm. And we will leave the lamp a-burning, and then when you find there is naught to be afraid of, You will be well and a real man and not something Mm -hmm. for a man to be ashamed of being the father of. And there's that word thing again that you Mm -hmm. stress, Jesse. If you're not a man, you're 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 I don't know what you are. You're just you're just a thing. Mm. And and this story, I believe, is telling us that. That the the unexpressed thing that really is the danger is the thing that would turn an ordinary human being who wants sympathy, connectedness, and so on into a thing himself. Mm-hmm. It, it, it this is the this is the point where I on this page on four hundred eight is where I wrote Tommy's twin question mark <laughs> and. It's because I think I'm sensing what you're pointing to. Yeah, it, he he's not man enough. Well, he's only six. He, you know, the mom says, "Can't we relent before they the father nails up the door and and then does that horrible thing of explaining, "I'm going to torture you, son. I'm going to give you the worst fear of your life, and that's the only thing that's going to happen, son." Um, what what is he afraid of? That's the question, right? The parents say there's nothing to be afraid of. He's just weird. And the doctor says, well, he's just weird. And then the psychiatrist who's consulted uh, by the doctor says, well, that's going to damage him. None of them know what Tommy knows, and Tommy can't even explain it. But whatever it is, it is something legitimately to be afraid of, given the ending. And... Yeah, and and that makes my mind go wild as to what it is. You know, like, what is it? You know, just like if you're in a tent and you've just heard a scary story sitting around the campfire, you're in the tent and you hear a sound out in the forest. What is it? Is that somebody trying to trick me? Is that a bear? Is it a deer? I hope it's a deer. <laughs> when you tell that kind of a story at a campfire. There are a number of motives, both for speaking and listening. Mm -hmm. One of the motives is to show that you're good at constructing a story, and that motive applies here as well. One of the motives is to try to scare your listeners 
When that doesn't apply here, I don't believe anybody can read this story and really be scared. I don't think (laughs) we project ourselves into Tommy and feel we're endangered. Another motive for for listening to the story around the campfire is it's kind of fun to to be together and creeped out. Mm -hmm. The number of people who like to go to horror movies and kind of scream together, enjoy uh, feigned fear, but in fact, real joy is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not this either, because this is a solitary reading experience. So I kind of have to ask myself, what is the motive for wanting to read this? Why does it get replayed so often? Mm-hmm. I think it gets replayed in the YouTube videos that you're talking about for the campfire reasons. Mm-hmm. I want to scare people. But why did they want it to be this story that they would use to scare them. And I don't think it's because they themselves were really scared. I think it's because they can see that this story, which perhaps to the point of, of self-parody, to go back to your comedic uh, sense, uh, exploits so many pulp horror genre tropes, it nonetheless gets at something deep. When you said, what was he afraid of just a few moments ago, Jesse? At first, I wasn't sure who the he was. Hmm. Trembling, he examined all that was left of little Tommy. Twitching, he looked into the open space, down into that cellar. At last, he looked at Tucker and Tucker's wife. Tommy, Tommy has been hurt. I, I guess he is dead. He stammered. The mother threw herself on the floor and picked up the torn, mutilated thing that had been only a little while ago, her little Tommy. There is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. <laughs> oh, a spooky story.